Praise God. You turn to Exodus. I keep on saying Genesis. Exodus chapter 20. This is the last part in a, just a very short four-part series that has proved to be probably very necessary in reviving our understanding of the Ten Commandments and their relevance and importance today. I just want to recap or reread that opening verse in Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And God goes on, he opens up, that's a very important introduction there. Because one of the reasons we go back and look at these commandments, why we've done this, is because they're pertinent for certain things. For freedom. I am the Lord your God. There were many gods in those days. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. That was me. It's that one. I'm the God who can give you freedom. I'm the God who did give you freedom. And this same God who brought freedom carries on with ten commandments, which are the ways in which we keep it. I've entitled this series, The Laws of Joy, because I couldn't think of anything better to call it. That's exactly what they are. These laws are not burdensome or heavy or wearying. They're exactly the opposite. And I honestly believe the devil has has really played so many games with these truths, and I hope you've seen something of that over these last two weeks. Tonight's first commandment, we've got four to finish off the ten. And the first one, thou shall not commit adultery. And right off the bat, we need to clear up what adultery is. Fornication is sexual deviance or behavior between two single people. And you will find that in many places in the Bible. But adultery is sexual misbehavior between two married people. Now, personally, I'm absolutely fascinated by the subject of love, relationships, marriage, sex, and all that that contains. Not the way the world looks at it, but from a biblical perspective. Relationships are fascinating. Love is fascinating. When you see it, through the Bible. It's absolutely fascinating. But the trouble is it gets so corrupted. As you know, we have a TV program goes out three times a week in about half the world. We have emails and phone calls from all over the place, from many different countries. Guess what subject the most common phone call is about or email is about? Adultery. Adultery. We get more phone calls on that subject than anything else. A woman will ring in and say, I, I, I think my husband's you know, fancying someone else. A, a man will ring in and say the same about his wife. It's not always, sometimes it's a man who's gone off with a man. It's a crazy world. It's a very sad thing. And you don't always win. But this is incredibly common, you know, today. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There are some cultures that have managed to stave off the problem quite a lot. But certainly in the West, we have not managed to do that. And it's heartbreaking. I I wouldn't go into the details of some of the emails, but here's one this week that was very good. I was delighted about it. This is a man who's married, got two children, and is involved in an adulterous affair. And we've been working with him, and he wrote this email this week. He's just managed to bring himself out of the affair. And do you know what he says in the email here? He says, I firmly believed... In once saved, always saved. But I read your book. Nobody ever told me that. And I discovered after reading that, 
that it wasn't true. And my belief in my false security, once saved, always saved, led me to sin and commit adultery. And I now see the danger I am in, so I'm pulling right out of that and getting back with my wife. Hallelujah. This is a huge subject, far greater than perhaps we realize today in the, in the world that we live in. And we're going to look at it just for a few moments. We'll move on to the other commandments. But as I say, I, I think it's a fascinating subject, probably because I understand a little bit about it. If you take the world's perspective, you're never going to see the, the glory and the beauty of relationships. Humanism, when it comes to adultery or sex, humanism would say sex is just another human appetite, like, eat, like eating or sleeping. There's nothing special about it, you know? Nothing could be further from the truth. Sexual intercourse, as we've looked at here in, in quite a lot of detail, is not just a physical thing. It is truly, truly a spiritual thing. Truly a spiritual thing. Somewhat of a mystery. It's an emotional thing. It's a miracle, really. The Bible doesn't explain it in full. It just calls it a mystery. When a man and woman get married and they have intercourse, do you know that the two become that's odd, isn't it? One and one make two. The two should become two. How do the two become one? How does that happen? That's not proper math there, you know? Well, there's a miracle right there, isn't there? So before you're single, or sorry, when you're single, you're one and your partner is one. But something happens emotionally, spiritually. Something happens your whole persona. You become half. You actually lose half of yourself and the two shall merge and actually morph into one. For some people who, you know, don't obey the rule book, that becomes a very painful process, a very hard thing to go through. But make no mistake, if you've got any idea about the amount of mental illness and, you know, mayhem there is in people's minds with regards to relationships, it's, you know, a large proportion of it is because they have disrespected sex. People actually believe, listen to me, a, a man, a woman, actually believe that they can go into town, pick somebody up, sleep with them, and walk away. And think that was it. That is not it. You have just been involved in a spiritual, emotional activity, and you will never be the same again. Don't doubt it. And adultery is currently taken so lightly because of the perspective that the world has about sex. It's only sex. No, it's not only sex. It's not only sex. There's great dynamics involved here that you will pay a high price for emotionally and mentally. The world has really three or two ways of looking at it, those first two there. And they're both wrong. When, it, when you start talking about love to people, some people take the, um, the rational, sorry, the first one should be second, the, the rational approach. And that is they call love, say, it's a bit like buying a car, you know. The, a man will say this woman is, is, is rationally well suited to me. We like the same things, we've got the same hobbies. Yeah, okay, let's get married. You know? Just like you go and buy a car, you know, what year is it? Does it have power steering? You know, I'll take it. And it's that sort of rational approach, which is actually very common in parts of Europe and in many other parts of the world. And they call that love. 
I don't think so. <laughs> it's just, you know, having a rational explanation for relationships, and that's not biblical. Then you've got the romantic-type perspective that some people see it in just that way. And that's not biblical in the fullest sense either. Not at all, you know? And I get this all the time. I'd have a couple that would come to me maybe and say, we want to get married, you know? I say, okay, well, what we have to do is we're going to have to work through some premarital counsel. And they say, we want to get married next week. I say, no, we're not going to be getting married next week. We're going to be at least six weeks, at least. I say, oh, we, we can't do that. We want next week. No, we're going to have to find somebody else then because I ain't marrying you next week. Not unless you've got extraordinary circumstances here because it takes time, you see. Oh, but we're in love. You don't understand. <laughs> no, you don't understand. Do you know why adultery takes place or why the divorce rate is so high? Because lots of people think to themselves, we're well suited, that's rational. We have emotional feelings, it's romantic. We're in love, so let's get married. But neither of those things are the foundation or the true explanation of biblical love. So many say, we're in love, therefore let's get married. Nope, I'm afraid not. There's more to it than that. Where's the will of God? Where is the will of God in this? More than any other thing. That's what we need to hear from people. I'll tell you a few little secrets tonight, home truths tonight, about our relationship. In years gone by, many things happened that, and God taught me you know, along the years so I could teach you and showed me things. Things not that, that happened to me, but I also see them happen to many other people. I was starting to think to myself, I'm going to ask Jeanette to marry me, right? And you know what happened? All of a sudden, this girl starts to <laughs> come to me and be attracted to me, and another one, and then I'm thinking, oh, hang on, I'm getting confused. <laughs> I have seen that. I have seen that pattern. I, I thought it was just me. <laughs> I have seen that pattern again and again and again and again. And I marvel at it. Someone will come and they'll say, you know, Pastor, I'm, I'm thinking of getting married to this person. What do you think? Next thing you know, there's about four girls after the one guy or four guys after the one girl. And it's almost like at that time, it's maybe the devil, I don't know, trying to pull you off track, trying to confuse you at a very important point in life. So I found myself just about to say, Jeanette, will you marry me? And so someone comes and says, excuse me, Pastor, I think God's just spoken to me. It's, you know, you and me. <laughs> what? And then another person, and then another woman wrote me a letter, and I'm thinking, man, I am confused. And I had to go back to the book, you know. On what basis am I making my decisions? On what basis am I making my... This is a big decision. This is very important. Got to get it right. On what... Is it going to be rational? Is it going to be romantic? And I can tell you, as I, you know, move through those, that short time in my life, I made a decision based on one thing only. And that's the Bible. It had to be mutually sacrificial Love, biblical love. You see, the love the Bible speaks about is not rational. And it's not actually romantic in that sense. Do you know what it is? It's action. And God describes love as obedience. Real love. Not as romantic. Don't get all tied up in that. Let me put it like this. Listen carefully. There's a man and a woman and they live, they're, they're married. And they're totally faithful to one another. 
they serve one another. Anything she wants, he will do. Anything he wants, she will do. And you know, even though there may not be any romance as such in that, do you know what, from God's perspective, do you know what he says? Look how they love one another. Because love in the Bible has got an awful lot more to do with faithfulness, obedience, commitment than virtually anything else. If you love me, Jesus says you will. Ah, I see. If you love me, you will obey me. All I'm saying is we're heavily influenced by this whole Hollywood thing, heavily influenced by Mills and Boone or whatever it might be, heavily influenced by our society. And you need to go back to the Bible and see the truth about love. So I made my decision to get married, not on so much romance, though that was certainly there, but it wasn't my decision. Not on a rational choice, though that was there too. They cannot be your primary decision. I looked at my life, and I looked at where I was going, and I know the sacrifices involved. And I looked at these different women, and I said to myself one thing, biblical love is in none of them except Jeanette. She's the only one. I, let me give you a little bit of insight. I get up about 4 o'clock on Sunday. So does she. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and she gets up. If I have to work all day Saturday, she will pray all day Saturday. And when I go in the office, she gets on her knees. And as I looked at her and looked at the different individuals involved, I thought, you guys wouldn't even last a week. <laughs> I'd have you worn out in one week. You'd be done. You could never make it. And so it's not about romance as such. If you get the biblical things right, everything else will look after itself. Put God first. He'll choose really well. And it will, it will just be a perfect match. Right? I know you've, we've got our problems. But don't get tied up with romance, guys. That's where your adultery comes in. Because people go in with rose-colored glasses thinking everything's going to be this, that, and it isn't. And so they end up disappointed, and outside the relationship they go. And that's the root of all of this. We need to get a clear foundation. So thou shalt not commit, commit adultery. The eighth commandment is, thou shalt not steal. Something that maybe, we, again, we overlook in Christian circles, but it's very common in Christian circles. I wonder if there's anybody here who's been stealing. <laughs> very quiet. <laughs> I had a guy in our church in Dublin, and he began, he was a very nice guy, very generous with other people's stuff. He, he, used, to, he used to get the latest Hillsongs CD and quite happily, you know, copy it and copy it and copy it. And I noticed he was giving out all these CDs. I said, what, what is that? I called him aside one day and I said, that's what you're giving out. You can't do that. He said, oh, it's Okay. I said, it's not okay. No, he said, it's okay because it's in a church and he came out with that. It's not okay. That's a Hillsong CD there, you know. You can't just copy that. and get, That's copyrighted. If they want that, they need to buy that. There's money involved in these things, big money. That's, that's stealing. Well, he argued, you know, day after day about that. And in the end, I ended up having to make an announcement because I couldn't stop it in the church. <laughs> in the church. And I ended up having to, listen guys, no more CDs are going to be copied around here. Heavens above. This is a church, isn't it? Now I know we might need music, and it's different for worship teams. That's a different set of circumstances. If you need, you know, lyrics and stuff like that, that's fine. I'm talking about mass producing a CD you bought and giving it away to all your friends. <laughs> this is crazy. 
But so lightly was that taken. I don't think it's to be taken lightly, see. I really don't. I think it's very serious. When you start treating things like that lightly, you've actually lost your way. Could I have the next list up? These are some of the reasons that people give why they had to steal. I needed to do it. And you may have some of them in your heart about anything or attitudes that you may have. The first thing people will say, well, I had to steal it because I really needed it. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> That's not a reason. You can't steal things because you really need them. Many of you know Pastor Elia here well. You probably don't know him as well as I do. Because I've traveled with him and been in his home and been to his home village where he came from and all around those places. And it's quite an experience. It really was a, a heart-rending experience for me to see the poverty there. Pastor Elia, you would never dream of his background and where he came from. Terrible poverty. Terrible, terrible poverty. And, and, and the villages there, you know, the Roma villages, where there's maybe no food for weeks on end. And not, you know, nothing, no money. There is nothing. And there's hundreds and in some cases thousands of people. No food. And you've got your kids. And you have to feed them. What do you do? Many Christians in these places. Do you want to know what they do? They steal. They steal. The mum will go into town and they will shoplift. They will pilfer. The fathers will go out at night and climb into fields and steal vegetables. And some even pray that God would put stuff in their way that they would be able to steal. I'm not joking. That's not that uncommon. I've encountered that in other cultures too. Well, because my child is hungry. I have to steal. I really needed it. Lord, you wouldn't want my child to go hungry. I need to go and steal in order to feed them because we don't have any money. And then in the middle of all that confusion and chaos, you find Elias' mom and Elias' dad. And one day he went out and they started to tell me their story. And his mother, I'd been to the villages, I could see the poverty. And his mother was telling us about when he was growing up. And all the people around, she said, they would all go and steal. But we made a decision when he was born and when his sister was born that we didn't need to steal because we have God. And that we would trust God. And whether we're hungry or not, it doesn't matter. At least we've still got God. And Pastor Timothy took me when they moved in so he could do his studies. They moved into really what was a garage and had to live in that as he went to school. And he took me to see that. And I thought, my God, may God bless your mom and your dad for going without food so that they didn't have to steal for going without what everyone else had, so at least they could say at the end of the day, our boy is going to know what is right and what is wrong. It's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Not going with the flow. I really need it. There's many people who really need I have never seen the righteous begging bread, the Bible says. And if we will just trust, cross the line, God will turn up for us. Another excuse, the owner doesn't need it. No excuse to steal. It never gets used. No excuse to steal. They can afford another one. <laughs> no excuse to steal. They won't miss it. We had this homeless guy coming to our church on a regular basis, and he was in a squat just down the road from our church. And one day I happened to go into the squat, and I could not believe 
He had stolen all my stuff. <laughs> they won't miss it. I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it. I was looking, I was thinking, that used to be mine. As my chair, my fridge, my thing. I'm thinking, you've been taking this stuff for ages. And I didn't miss a thing. And he just kept on taking as if it's okay because there's no alarm ringing. But it's not okay just because something's not missed. And many of your workplaces will be like that. It's such a small thing. And this is such a big church, such a big company that it doesn't matter. But isn't that what sets us apart, isn't it? Isn't that what makes the difference when we actually draw a line, not legalistically, but just a clear perspective in our mind of what is right and wrong when other people don't have it? What about finders keepers? That's another one. You know, when we find something, we should hand that thing in, especially if you find it in somebody's handbag. (laughs) Not paying your debts. Not paying your debts. More common, once again, than you might realize. If you have debts, you need to pay them. Because if you don't pay them, what have you done? You've stolen the money. You've stolen the money from the person you borrowed it from. Actually, going back to that occasion, whenever I was just about to ask Jeanette to marry me, right? This is what happened. Listen to this. So I'm just going to go, and all these things start happening, right? And this one girl says, I need to talk to you because I know God's spoken to me and that we're to be married. And I thought, man, I need it. God, help me. What do I do? And in that case, I said, God, I said, I'll see you in one week's time. I need to seek God. You go away, I'll talk to you in one week. And I turned to God, I said this, Lord, I need a word. I need a crystal clear word from you, right? My heart is right. I will do what is right. Now, I need you to speak to me. And and particularly about this girl who says she's heard from you and all this stuff. And I went away. It was something like two days. I get a phone call from a woman in our church who I know and trust. She said, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, no, no problem. I met her. And she, you know, she, she shocked me. She said, I want to talk to you about someone. I said, who? That girl. She owes money here and there and there. There's something seriously wrong with her. She's taking that money and not paying it back. I thought, thank you, Lord. See, God was revealing something to me, showing me a hidden side to that person. That's theft, friends. And God might just squeal on you. (laughs) Right? That's theft. And that's a serious deviation from God's will. Don't take it lightly. If you owe anyone money, pay them back. Because it's just another form of stealing. Now, these are a list of things that we can do to man. But we can also steal from God in tithes and offerings and it says that in Malachi God says you have robbed me in tithes and offerings notice that offerings that's Passover offerings that's free will offerings sacrificial offerings and he you know requests or demands commands us to bring those things into the house so assess yourself I know what it's like in the workplace you go into work and it can be so lackadaisical so you know people can say oh just take it they'll never miss it and you have to, to, to not give in to that pressure. I worked as a bread man for about a year and a bit, about a year and two or three months. And I was under pressure right from the beginning. Going into a shop and these two guys told me what they wanted. <laughs> the previous driver used to bring us this, that, that, that. You give us that bread, we give you this vegetables. Oh, what? 
This is the way it works. There was even milk involved. You met in another place, they swapped milk, and I thought, goodness me. I said, sorry, I won't be doing that. And all of a sudden, day goes by, a week goes back, and the pressure starts to build. And then they start getting nasty and blocking the door, not letting you in, and really getting nasty and threatening me. And I remember one of them said, you're going to bring us the bread. And I said, I'm a Christian. What? I'm a Christian. And I'm holding my... And they sort of stepped back, and I put my bread... I won't be giving you my boss's bread. And I walked out. And that guy followed me to the van. And he stuck his head, he said, You're a what? (laughs) I'm a Christian. I can't steal my boss's bread. And isn't it sad that you're shocked? Isn't it sad that someone should be, like, shocked at that statement? They should not be shocked. It should be absolutely commonplace in your office, in your apartment, or wherever you are. Thou shalt not steal. Keep it, you know, high on your agenda. The ninth commandment, and this is where it gets pretty serious. Thou shalt not lie, or thou shalt not bear false witness. Once again, it's more pervasive than we probably think. It's easy to tell lies. Very easy. Probably the easiest thing in the world is to let that lie slip off your tongue. Amen? You can do that intentionally or you can do it unintentionally. We're called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The truth, the whole truth means that we don't leave anything out. (laughs) Very easy to tell a lie by leaving something out. And nothing but the truth. That means you don't add You don't add things that aren't true to embellish any circumstance or even story. Absences in what you say can be lies. Just what you leave out. Exaggerations. Put it politely and call it exaggerating, but often it can be a simple lie. Simple as that. And when we add or we embellish something that we're saying, that's just simply wrong because it can go from exaggeration to complete lie. Behind each one of these commandments is the spirit of the commandment. And behind this one, I see a hugely important spirit. It's not just about lying. It's not just about lying. It's not just about do not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's far bigger than that. And this commandment involves gossiping, involves slander, involves speaking negatively against one another. It involves, and I, I see in it all of that. And turn to Genesis. I'll show you how serious this stuff can be. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, or thou shalt not lie, really involves your attitude, the spirit of you, that comes from you when covering others or caring for others instead of slandering them. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke up from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done, he turned to him and said, Cursed be Canaan. Look at that. 
Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also turned and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, I don't know if you know what's going on here, but it's a bit like deformation of character. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Here's Noah. Noah gets drunk and for some reason gets naked, lies down in his tent, and he's out for it. Now, in comes, sorry, I forgot, in comes, who is it, Ham? In comes Ham, and instead of covering the sin of his father, instead of looking after him, protecting him, and being, what does he do? Hey, Shep, come here, quick! Japheth, quick! And they push Ham, what are you thinking about? Cover your father. Cover his sin. Don't bear witness against him. Don't broadcast his sin. Hide. Now look, it shocks me this does. It really does. This is a patriarch talking. I wouldn't want that said over me. Noah comes out and he's sober. Ham, cursed. Wow. Cursed are you. Because of the witness you bore against me. Even though I was wrong. You didn't honor your father in that situation, right? Cursed are you. And to the other brothers who cared to, to, to keep the testimony of their father, blessed will you be because you covered someone else's sin. That's the spirit behind thou shalt not bear false witness or whatever type of witness against your brother, but rather build people up. Amen. And have a good heart towards your brothers and sisters. A friend of mine was working for an organization called Teen Challenge. Some of you will know that. They work with drug addicts and alcoholics, all that type of thing. And there was two of them in Dublin. Stephen O'Brien was his name. Actually, he's walking down the, the River Liffey in Dublin, and he looks down on the side, and there is one of the workers who's not on heroin or alcohol anymore. He's drug-free, and the guy is sitting down on the riverbank with a bottle of cider. And he's a worker in a rehab. Glug, 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 glug. And Stephen sees him. Stephen also is a worker there. And you know what he did? Stephen went down, and the guy, <gasps> and Stephen said, hang on, hang on, hang on. Give me the bottle. And Steve took a drink. And then he threw the bottle in the water, sat down, put his arm around him, and he said, if I can't know you when you're in the pit, how can I ever say I'll know you when we're in the palace? Let's figure it out. Let's work it out. Come on. Let's go. I'll take you out of here. That's an attitude, isn't it? A good, godly, restorative attitude that keeps a person's testimony, that covers them, that doesn't bear witness or false witness or bad witness. And that's the spirit behind this law, this rule, that if we can incorporate it in our lives, we will be blessed. Not cursed. Blessed. And I want that. One of the, man, I, I, I've seen many sins, you know, and dealt with many situations over the years. Many child molesters that we've had to deal with in different places. Probably about 12 or 13. A mass murderer at one point and several other murderers. Rapists. People you have to sit and work them through what they have done and then where they are going after that. But of all the sins that I've ever had to cope with, one sticks out in my mind. And it's a situation that grieved me so deeply. It was a, a, a couple 
who, who the wife had gone into adultery. And a person found out about it, came and told me. We got them together. Uh, and there was only about six people who actually knew what had happened in this family. And I called them all together in one room and sort of drew a metaphorical circle around them. And I explained clearly to everyone in that room, we know what's happened here. And that's it. And today we make a commitment that these couples will go and get on with their lives and no one will breathe a word of this all the days of our lives. Will you agree? We agree. You're never going to speak of it. You're going to let these families go in peace. We agree. Covering the sin. Six months go by and someone comes to me to say that one of the people in that room had told someone. I, I called that girl. I brought her into my office. I said this to her. Of all the sins that I've ever had to deal with, this just, I think this is absolutely appalling. I think it's atrocious. I think your sin is worse than that adultery. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. When we get to heaven, maybe it won't be. But right now, in my heart, the fact that you would uncover someone else's sin, I, I'm really struggling to cope with that. That's a terrible thing. That's bearing witness. That's gossip, isn't it? That's gossip. And it's a wicked and evil thing. And there's a prevention there for us as a church, as people, as individuals. Watch your testimony of your brother. Cover each other. Don't bear false witness. Don't go around gossiping. Don't talk. Don't tell lies. Right? That's a good commandment. A very good commandment. And the last commandment, and many have obviously read different books on the Ten Commandments, and everybody seems to agree that this one, thou shalt not covet, is of immense importance, probably because it's the one that people seem to break the most. Coveting, right, which is basically wanting what other people have, coveting is one of the most common sins of all sins. It was actually what caused Satan to fall. He coveted what God had, the worship that was going to God. It was in Satan, it was in Eve, right after Satan. It was in Lot, it was in Achan, it was in Eli's sons, it was in Saul, it was in David, and ultimately it was in Judas, wanting what other people have. And God names a few things. He says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, his wife, or his cattle. I don't know if you want to read the, anything into the order there. Maybe his house is better looking than his wife, and the wife is better looking than the cattle. Amen. <laughs> That's the order. <laughs> So there's coveting in, in many different areas. And we've got to assess ourselves and see if that is anything in me or in you. This is considered, as I say, to be the most uh, common of sins. And it's a, it's a terrible thing because it's based upon the assumption that if I acquire something, that's something, I'm coveting it because it's going to make me happy. <laughs> People covet things because they think that if I get that, then I'll be happy. And that's why there's a commandment against it. Because you're being fooled. You're being deceived. Nothing you can ever get is going to make you happy. God spoke to me one day and he said this statement. Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. 
In other words, there's nothing that I'm ever going to do. It's not out there. Contentment is within. My soul finds rest in God alone. And there's nothing I'm going to do or be. Let me just name three things. There's no relationship that you're ever going to enter into that is actually going to make you happy. No person can do that for you. What you find is that people who are unhappy before they get married are unhappy when they're married. People who are happy before they get married are generally happy when they get married. Marriage doesn't change those things. In fact, it's even more pressure more often than not. So listen to me, friends, please, especially those of you who are single, those of you who are married will already have learned this lesson. Amen. Some pretty sour faces looking at me right now. Yeah, I learned it. <laughs> Relationships will not make you happy, right? My soul finds rest in God alone. Possessions will not make you happy. There's nothing you can ever get, nothing you can ever acquire. In fact, the book of Proverbs says exactly the opposite. It says the rich man can't sleep. Tossing and turning all night, worrying about what he's got. I wonder if this is okay. I wonder if that's okay. Right? Nothing, no, no relationship. Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. No relationship, no possession, and certainly no achievements that you're ever going to. That's for sure. And goodness knows there's enough qualifications in this place. But you guys should know by now. There ain't no qualification or letters after your name that is ever going to make you happy. And I don't actually see that here. Praise God. But it's very true, isn't it? Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. Let me finish this with this story. And you ask if it applies to you. Once upon a time, there was a, a king. And the king, even though he had everything, was very miserable and felt an empty, like that God-shaped hole, if you like, inside his heart. And one day he thought to himself, I know what will make me happy. If I can get the coat of a man who is totally content, totally happy, and I can put that coat on me, I will then be happy and content. He calls his servant says, go get me the coat of a man who is totally happy and totally content. And the servants go off and go. They come back a few days later, oh, can't find one. Ain't anybody anywhere. He says, go back and find me a man who's happy and bring me his coat. And they go again. A few days later, they come back. Sorry, king. We can't. Go back and find me a coat of a man who's happy. A few days later, back they come. And this time they say, king, we found a man who's totally happy and totally content. But we're sorry he doesn't own a coat. And the lesson is absolutely true. There is nothing that you can ever have, nothing that you will ever achieve, nothing you will ever do that's going to make you happy if you actually aren't right now. Materialism. Remember songs of praise? Remember songs of praise? Those of you from the UK will know that. I should invite the worship team back, actually. There's a songs of praise was a, a praise program on Sundays. And this one Sunday, they had a live broadcast from Romania and from Britain. And the children in Britain had sent, a bit like we do our shoeboxes, the children in Britain had sent the shoeboxes and the stuff, the presents, the toys, over to Romania. And they had a split screen with the children with nothing and the children with the so-called wealth. And you should have seen, I never forgot it. I was only a kid when I saw it, but I never forgot it. The child in Romania was glistening, glowing, radiant, full of joy. 
And the child in Britain looked as if they were stuffed, you know, with sausages and goodness knows what. Miserable. I, I could see it. I said, look at, look, I mean, look at that. Those that had nothing, yet they had everything. And don't fall for it. These are called the commandments, the, the laws of joy. And it truly is. He's a good father. And if we will obey these rules, we will end up in that place of joy. Let's stand. Father, we take your word seriously into our hearts tonight. I thank you for the Ten Commandments. I thank you that you're a good daddy that has not left us abandoned, not left us in the world without guidelines and perimeters. And we pray, God, that you would give us the wisdom and the grace to obey them, to put them into practice. And even for tonight's few commandments, that we would not commit adultery in our minds, in our hearts, Lord, that we would not steal in any way, shape, or form. That we would not covet anything, knowing that it will never bring contentment anyway. God, seal these commandments in our hearts and enable us to live them out. In Jesus' name. here at Preparing the Way. By doing so, you can help us to take these essential messages out to many other nations, many other people around the world. You can become a partner by visiting our website, preparingtheway.tv, and there you will find many ways that you can join up. Folks, it is a pleasure and an honor to partner with you in bringing in the end times harvest. God bless you, and once again, thank you for listening.